Good morning, MRCC. Yes, Father, we come into your presence now to glorify you in this place. Let's bring our whole hearts, church, united as his sons and daughters. We lift up the name of Jesus. Nothing that our God can do. 
surrender this morning. His arms are open. His presence is available. And his freedom is surrender. Father, speak to us now. We pour out this praise before you in humble surrender. I've carried a burden for too long on my own. I wasn't created A soul needs a friend, so run to the Father. 
that stone was moved for good, for the Lamb had conquered yes, death. Right. And the dead rose from their tombs, and the angels stood in awe for the souls of all who'd come to the Father are restored. And the church of Christ was born, then the Spirit lit the flame. Gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. By his blood and in his name, in his freedom I am free. For the love of Jesus Christ, who has resurrected me. He offers new life and redemption. We respond with praise. Let's praise the Father in his place. celebrate you. Your victory we delight in. God, your word says that even though the world doesn't see us yet for what we are, they will. We are the children of God. We glorify you. We thank you for making us yours, God. We thank you that you promised us that in this world, though we may have trouble, we can be of good cheer because you have overcome this world. God, teach us to rest in that. Teach us to rest in that. To look past this moment like you looked past the cross so that we can serve and love and rejoice in the meantime. We pray for that. Church, let us pray together the way Jesus taught us as a family, as brothers and sisters. Let us offer up together our Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. It's great to see you, friends. It's great to be back. Ron and I were gone this week for spring break and over to the coast. We got there just as the sun was disappearing into the clouds last weekend, so it was a blessing. It's great to be with you. Would you take a moment and make sure everybody around you feels welcome? Say hi to somebody. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to first service here in Mount Rainier Christian Center this Sunday morning, this Lord's Day. It's great to be with you. You know, it is good to get away uh, like Rhonda and I did a little bit last week, but there's something so sweet and precious about coming back again. Uh, I have no earthly explanation for it, but I like your faces. So, uh, you know, there it is. It's good to see everybody this morning. It's good to be with you. We worshiped with Ocean Shores Fellowship Church uh, last Sunday morning, and uh, and it made me miss you. So it's good. Uh, it's good to be with you. Um, yeah, 
I, uh, <laughs> no, it was, uh, you know, sometimes we take things for granted, and it's good to remember uh, that we do that. Um, I'm missing my wife this weekend, so I'm completely out of sorts. She's visiting her family. I may not even have underwear on, for all I know. But just, she comes home on, on Monday, and actually, uh, we as a church staff leave this afternoon to go to Coeur d'Alene for the next three days because we have to attend our, our annual denominational meetings uh, over there. So I'm not even going to see her till Wednesday. I could be completely insane by then. I don't know, but... Um, but you're helping me uh, this morning. Good to be with you. And thanks to uh, Pastor Darius for bringing the word last week. He's actually speaking over in uh, Palsbo this morning at uh, the church led by one of our former youth pastors, Andy Douglas, over there. So uh, good, good, uh, good place for him to be this morning. Um, just, a, just a few announcements. And then I want to ask us to pray together. Uh, I want to ask us to pray together for our nation, you guys. Our country needs it desperately. Um, you know, the violence is, is a spiritual thing. And our prayers are what achieve spiritual victories. Uh, so I want to ask you to pray for our nation in a moment. Join me in doing that. But first, uh, just a few quick announcements. And one is, uh, I know I, I say this often, and I feel a little bit like a broken record, but I want to say it again. Just thank you, church. Uh, I forgot to greet everybody online this morning. Great to be with you. Um, thank you, church, for your faithful giving. You know, a week and a half ago, we were able to step in again, help a family that was just about to become homeless. If it wasn't for us, the mother with two small children would have been. And over and over, and that's not an isolated thing, over and over and over again, we as a church get to do stuff like that. And it's because we are so incredibly generous as a church. And so I just want to thank you. Um, you don't always get to see it. It happens during the week very often. And, and very often when we help people, we don't publicize it. But um, we get to do it over and over and over again. It's a beautiful thing. So uh, huge thanks for your faithfulness in giving. A um, couple of quick things coming up uh, on May 3rd. So just a couple of weeks away. That's a Monday will be our, our spring membership classes. And those are going to happen on three consecutive Mondays. Uh, the third, I believe it is, the 10th and the 17th. If you've decided that MRCC is your home church and you want to get connected, you want to get plugged in, find out why we do what we do, uh, gives me a chance to meet you personally, I would invite you to come and join us for membership classes. You can sign up at the guest center, call the church office, or even just show up. But uh, those three classes, we do them every fall and every spring. And it's kind of a, a doorway into engagement and connection with your church. So I want to invite you, if you've decided that this is your home church, to, to consider joining us for membership. Always at the end of that membership cycle, we celebrate water baptism. So if you have never publicly confessed your faith in Jesus. We're going to be doing that the end of May as well, May 23rd. This is your opportunity to do that. You can sign up uh, to be a part of that. Uh, it's right around the bend. Uh, again, we do that right after our membership classes each year. So that's coming up as well. There's a MOPS tea, Mothers of Preschoolers. That's what MOPS stands for. Uh, MOPS, Mothers of Preschoolers tea coming up on the 15th of May. That's right around the corner. Uh, ladies, you're invited to be a part of that. If you are a mother of a preschooler, always everything we do is free. There's no cost, but we'd love to invite you to come and be a part of that. More details uh, on the website and on the, uh, the screen behind me. Our nation needs prayer. And uh, I, I might ask you if you would to stand with me and let's, let's pray together uh, as a church. And, and I would ask you, friends, not to fall into the trap of saying, well, this is my moment to listen to pastor pray. <laughs> no, I would invite you to join your prayers to mine this morning in this moment. If during a time like this, we don't cry out to God for healing in our land, we're really missing it. And, um, and our prayers make all the difference. So would you bow your heads with me? God, we come to you this morning for the brokenness, the wickedness in our land. God, we come seeking you. We come needing you. God, we come this morning like Daniel did, confessing our sins, uh, you know, freely admitting, Lord, that we have chosen wicked ways, God, and, and that as a result of that, Lord, we're experiencing the, the oppression of the enemy, God. I think of all the violence, God, and 
Lord, you know, our whole culture says that getting revenge and winning by, by physical might and overpowering our enemies is the road to where we want to go, and it's all a big lie, God. Deliver us from that lie. Jesus, you won the greatest spiritual battle of all by dying on a cross, by surrendering and submitting yourself to the Father's plan. God, I pray, we pray that you would give our nation that kind of humility, that kind of repentance, that you would cause us to fall on our knees and confess to you our need of you. Lord, you are our healer. You're the one who can heal our land. We read in your word that you invite us to pray and you say that when we do, you will heal our land. And you, you say that anytime you announce judgment on a nation, if that nation repents, you will relent from your judgment. God, we pray for that. We cry out to you for that. And God, we know that what we're praying for begins inside of each one of our hearts. So God, let it begin in us right here and right now. God, teach us to surrender man's anger, which your word says cannot bring about your righteousness. God, teach us to walk in humility and grace in love for one another. We pray for that. God, teach us that, that we as a church find our power not in overwhelming a ballot box, God. We find our power in worship and prayer and serving. And teach us to walk in that, we pray that we might be used of you to heal our land. We pray for that. God, you are our hope. We rest in your promise of grace. We cry out for healing, and we do it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. Yeah. Yeah. Grab your Bible, if you would, church, and, and open it to a couple of places. One is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're continuing our journey together through 1 Thessalonians, but also over to Matthew 26, because we're going to move back and forth uh, a little bit this morning. This journey together through 1 Thessalonians, we began at the first of the year, and remember what we reminded ourselves is that we, we grow up, we really grow up in God when we start receiving his word on its own terms just letting his word speak to us uh, from its context instead of saying, God, here's my issues, now talk to me. No, God says, listen to what I'm saying and it'll address all your issues. And we find ourselves this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. And I wonder if you would uh, cooperate with me a little bit. Would you, would you raise your hand if you're pet people, if you have pets at your house, dogs, cats, horses, whatever? Yeah, okay, right. A lot of us do. Um, you know, some statistics that I read say as many as half of all American households have pets. We have a pet, Rhonda and I do, and everybody's expecting me to say something about cats. I'm not getting okay, so you just let that go right now. We're just talking about the reality of pets. And, you know, one of the, one of the uh, forms of spending that doesn't go down in our culture, no matter what's going on, is our care for our pets. <laughs> It just stays the same. If you ever want a sure investment, Petco's right there for you. Just put some money into it, and it's guaranteed. And, and on the one hand, whether we have horses or cats or dogs, you know, fish and lizards, those are kind of just for show. We're talking about those animals that you have a relationship with. And a lot of times, it doesn't make sense to have them. I mean, when you stop and think about it, they're expensive. Somebody say amen. They make messes. They're a hassle. They cramp your style. You can't just go anywhere unless you can take the dog or find somebody to take the dog. And, and when you look at it, there's a part of us that would say, why do we have them? I mean, why do we go through this? Why do we go through all the hassle associated with having them? Some people would say, kind of glibly, if you ask them that question, they'd say, well, because my pet loves me so much, and I appreciate that. And yeah, I get what you're saying, but, you know, at the end of the day, that's kind of not as real as we want it to be. Um, it's only a human being that can really love us. So, so why then do we have the pets? Why are they so important to us? Well, this is a, a real secret to how you and me are made. Church, the reality is that we love giving love to our pets. That, that's what's amazing. Sure, we love it when they greet us. You know, we come home and they're happy to see us and, you know, they nuzzle us or whatever. I grew up, my parents raised horses, so I was around them all the time. I know how attached people can get to them. And um, 
The reality, though, is that we love giving love to them. You know, this is our dog at home, and she's completely worthless and useless. She's coming up. There she is right now. Now, she, she has nothing really to offer except hair, a mess in the lawn, bad breath, and, you know, sometimes early in the morning she gets up on the bed and, and pushes you around, you know. She doesn't offer a lot. But we love giving our love to her. And that's how all of us are with our pets. And like I said, this is a big clue to who we are. Most of us think, assume, that being loved is the secret to joy. But the truth is that giving love Amen. is the secret to joy. Sit down on that for a moment. Take that in for a moment because it's key to what God wants us to understand this morning in his word. Our son, when he was small, had some quirks. He was a quirky little guy. And one of the things that drove us nuts was when Isaiah was about six or seven, eight years old, all the way up into his teenage years, you know, we'd be going somewhere or, or, or it'd be a slow Saturday and we'd say, hey, Isaiah, let's go to lunch. Where do you want to go? And almost every time we asked that, he would say, well, where do you want to go? Now, most kids don't do that, all right, but our weirdo son did. He would say, well, where do you want to go? And we'd say, no, 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 we're asking you, Isaiah. It's a slow Saturday. Mom and Dad, we want to take, where do you want to go? He said, I don't know, where do you want to go? And I mean, I wanted to hit him. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're like, no, 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 don't you understand? I want to bless you. <laughs> we, we want to bless you. Where do you want to go? And somehow, somewhere, he got it into his head that what we wanted from him more than anything else was his submissive obedience. When the truth of the matter is, what we wanted was him to know our love for him. And so when we said, where do you want to go? We wanted him to say, wherever, you know. Even if it would have been somewhere we didn't want to go, we actually wanted to go because we wanted to go for him. Now, here's why I bring this up. In the same way that, that we have our pets because of the joy of giving love, okay? In that same way, God calls for your obedience and mine so that we could receive and experience his love. In 1 Thessalonians 4, in a moment, Paul's going to talk about what it takes to please God. And he doesn't say what it takes to obey God. He says what it takes to please God. Because it is possible to obey God without pleasing him. Just as it's possible to obey your spouse or your boss without pleasing them. And the difference is that an obedience that flows from the understanding that we're, God is trying to bless us, that's the obedience that pleases him. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Not to obey. But to love. Now, loving includes obedience. But if all you do is obey, you're missing the point. That's why Jesus, at the end of his ministry, said to the disciples in John chapter 15, I no longer call you servants. A servant doesn't know his master's business. Now I call you friends. Why? Because a friend doesn't just obey. A friend pleases. A friend obeys out of an understanding of the love relationship that exists. Here's a question worth asking yourself as we step into the message this morning. Are you in your life aiming to obey God or to please him? Pleasing him will include obedience, but it is much more than obedience. We're going to focus on 1 Thessalonians 4, but I want to start there by going to Matthew chapter 26 to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about here. One of my favorite stories in scripture, listen to what the Bible tells us. Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 6, the Bible says this, while Jesus was in Bethany at the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, that seems a little weird to us. Why would she be pouring oil on his head? But in those days, it was a, a sacred and solemn 
act whereby you acknowledged somebody's significance and greatness. When a king became a king, he would be anointed with oil poured on his head. When a prophet took up his office, he would be anointed with oil poured on his head. When a priest took up their office at the temple, they would be anointed with oil poured on their head. And, and then it was also something that you did for, for special occasions in order to, to honor someone. And, and, and it had practical effects as well, you know, in a place where you couldn't take a shower every day. The aroma was pleasing. So there were a lot of there was a lot of angles to it. But she is doing it as a, a form of high honor to him, recognizing Jesus for who he is. Mark tells us that this jar of perfume was indeed very expensive. It cost a year's wages. So if you can imagine whatever you earn in a year, that was the value of this jar of perfume. And she poured it out on his head publicly. Now, when she did that, the disciples, the Bible says, were indignant. What an ugly word. <laughs> you know, they were kind of angry, upset, disapproving. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Well, yeah, that's true. But if all you see in life is math, you're missing the point. There's an awful thing in our modern culture called reductionism. It's when we reduce things to just their dollars and cents value. And that's what the disciples are doing in this moment. That's what sometimes we do to ourselves. That's what sometimes we do to each other. We reduce everything to just math. God sees more than math in you. You know, the worst thing you can do when somebody buys you a gift is to say, oh, I wish you wouldn't have spent so much money on me. Talk about missing the point. That person knew full well what they were doing. They chose to do that. It is their love they're trying to give you. And when you stop and say things like that, you're reducing what they're... You're making it about you instead of about them. And the disciples are doing that in this moment. We tend to do that to ourselves and other people. But understand something, church. God sees much more than math in you and in the people around you. Aware of this, the scripture tells us, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. It's art, not math. She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on me, she did it to prepare me for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, in the moment when he said that, a lot of people would have been tempted to say, are you kidding? Nobody's going to remember this tomorrow. But here we are still talking about it. And I wonder if in this moment you can feel Jesus' appreciation of what she's doing. He says, she has done a beautiful thing. Thing to me. And, and understand this, church, because it informs what we're about to learn. It wasn't what she did so much as why she did it. Let me say that again. It wasn't what she did so much as why she did it. That's what Jesus is seeing, what's happening in her heart. And you can, you can try and reduce what's happening here to math like the disciples did and say, well, gosh, if we'd have fed X number of people, that would have been better. God says, I'm looking for more than your obedience. I'm looking for your love. And the reality is that people who have moved beyond obedience are people who are learning to love God because they seek to please him not only with their obedience, that's a given, but with more than that. Very often we fall into kind of an unconscious pattern and habit of saying, well, God permits this, doesn't permit that, so I'm looking for all the angles. I just want to know what's okay. But that's not what makes a great marriage. And that's not what makes a great relationship with God. I don't, I don't say to my wife, wow, you know, have I done what you expected? <laughs> have I not crossed any boundaries? Are we good? I don't say that to her. It would be insulting. Oh, I say, honey, how can I please you today? What can I do to please you? Sometimes I'll come downstairs and I'll say to her, honey, have you thought about what you can do to please me today? <laughs> and we're joking, we're kidding. But what we're talking about is the reality that our relationship is more 
than just obedience. Jesus is seeing and feeling that. Like you, probably, I have a collection of stuff our son gave me for Father's Day or birthdays or Christmas over the years. And some of it is pretty awful. (laughs) You know, it's just like, really? Where did you find that? But I have all of it. I keep all of it. Why? Because it's mathematically valuable? No, it's not. (laughs) It's basically destined for a garage sale someday when I'm gone. But it's incredibly precious to me because he gave it. That's what Jesus is expressing in this moment. And that's what he delights in you and in me. Much more than obedience. It includes obedience, but it is a desire to please God. Understand, this is what God treasures most about you. Not whether you give gifts that please the crowd or make a big noise or attract applause, but when you give gifts from your heart to him. Even if in the world's eyes, it's not valuable. Now, if my son had brought me for Father's Day drug paraphernalia or cash he got from stealing or porn he picked up on sale, it'd be a different story. So obedience is part of this. But it's more than that. I don't keep that stuff uh, for any other reason than that he gave it to me. What if this woman had brought Jesus an expensive jar of perfume that she shoplifted from her neighbor's house? No, that wouldn't be what this is. It would have been a different thing. But Jesus was thrilled by her love for him. And here's the thing, and here's where we make the transition to 1 Thessalonians. He was thrilled by her love for him because he knew how it was blessing her. Stop for just a second, church, and take this in. God delighted... Now, you know, when I was a young believer, I read this story and I thought, wow, she's out a year's wages. How can Jesus be happy about that? It's because I didn't understand what love is. Jesus delights in what she is doing because he knows how good it is for her. Whenever God gives us his commandments, certainly his desire is that we should obey them. But we please him when we understand that our obedience blesses us. And that's crucial to grasp and understand. So with the stage set like that, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and listen to what Paul says to the believers at Thessalonica. Finally, brothers, he says, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. The word please is incredibly significant. He's not saying in order to obey God, although that's implied and included. He's saying how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know the instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So here's how you please God. It's an aim higher than obeying. Uh, another way to put it is God says, here's, here's how I want to bless you. Here's what I want you to enjoy. And he, he talks about three things. And in our last 10, 15 minutes, we're going to talk about those three things. Three things that please God in your life and mine. First of all, verses 3 to 6, he says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body, her own body, in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who don't know God. And that in this matter, catch this, no one should wrong his brother or sister or take advantage of him. For the Lord will punish men for all such sins. He has in view here the abuse of other people. As we've already told you and warned you, when he says the Lord will punish all such sins, the immediate antecedent is the abuse of another human being. Now, church, understand that the word sanctified, first of all, is God's will that you should be sanctified, is from the root Greek word meaning holy, which means to be set apart for. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, God says, be holy because I am holy. What he's saying is, be set apart to me because I am set apart to you. I'm willing to go to the cross for you. So be set apart to me. I can't experience the fullness of my wife's love unless I am devoted to her the same way she's devoted to me. That's the idea. Be sanctified. And how are we sanctified? Well, one of the key ways is to avoid sexual immorality. Now, understand something, church. In our culture, the definition of sexual immorality is way off base. 
way off base. And if you get your idea of what is sexually right or wrong from our culture, you're going to be in trouble. You will not be able to experience the blessing that God has for you. According to God's word, sexual morality means that you don't engage in sexual relationships with anybody outside of someone you're married to. That's not old-fashioned. That's biblical. That's God's plan for you. That is the plan that God has for you as a father who understands you more than you understand you, who loves you more than you love you. It's sex only inside of the covenant of marriage. People say, wow, that's, wow, I've never heard that before. Well, sadly, it's been the message all along. And, and, and another angle on this is that homosexuality, friends, which our culture increasingly portrays as normal and okay and something to be affirmed, God says is not. It's clear as a bell. Now, here's the problem. If we say that and the rest of our life is not a testimony to who Jesus is, we make the problem worse. So the key to making that message clear is the way we behave about everything else. As a matter of fact, Paul's going to get to that in the last part of this little passage we're looking at this morning. But homosexuality, friends, is not okay with God any more than, than, than sexual relations outside of the covenant of marriage. In Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the Apostle Paul says this, because of this, that is the, uh, an indifference to God, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even the women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men abandoned natural relations with women or inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. There are voices in our culture saying that, no, if you look really closely at what the Bible says, it doesn't forbid homosexuality. Baloney. The people who are saying that are the ones who haven't looked closely. Scripture is explicit. It's abundantly clear on these issues. There's no ambivalence. There's no ambiguity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this, Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy or drunkard, slanderers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed and sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. In other words, you came to understand that that's not God's will for you. Now, you know, people, we're rapidly approaching the day when to say what I'm saying right now will land me in prison. Okay, okay, believers have been going to prison forever. And people who want to practice their Christian faith without paying the civil price of it are cowards. Christians do the right thing in love and grace, and when they nail you to a cross, we say, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. But listen, God says it's his will for you to be sexually moral, to be sanctified. Our culture says sexual immorality is normal. It isn't. It's a big part of the reason why we are where we are. Now, there's lots of other reasons. It's not the most important one, but it is one of them. And, and it's important. I don't have a lot of time to get into this this morning, but it's important to understand our culture says if you feel a certain thing, that's who you are. What nonsense. I feel all kinds of crazy things. Most often when I'm driving, somebody say amen. Right? <laughs> you know, right? But that doesn't, I don't do those things, right? I say to myself, no, 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 that's not what God has for me. I say, no, 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 that's not what, that's, that, that's not right. And, and so when you experience temptation in things like this, that doesn't tell you who you are. That's not a definition of your personhood. To experience temptation is merely to experience temptation. That's the thing you say no to. It's the thing you learn to say no to. When you honestly struggle against sin, God is deeply pleased. There's a marvelous story we don't have time to get into about Jacob back in Genesis chapter 32. And the reality is that when he finally got to the point where he's willing to struggle with God, where he's willing to say, I want to be different than I am and I'm having a hard time doing that, it's at that moment that God gave him a new name and said, now I call you Israel. Now you're mine. <laughs> yeah. So if you struggle with these things, that's the sign that you belong to God. And the reality is it's God's will that you should be sanctified in these things. Notice what he says. No one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. People say, well, whatever happens between two people is consensual. No, it isn't. Because God is the father of both. God is the father of that woman that you choose to take advantage of sexually. God is the father of that man that you choose to take advantage of sexually. 
It's not just a two-person thing. You don't belong to yourself, the Bible says. We belong to God. And, and here's the really hopeful thing, though, he says in this passage. He says, each one should learn to control his own body. Boy, circle that in your heart, if nowhere else. What that is telling you is it is, it is possible for you to learn to rise above that struggle. You say to yourself, oh, I can't. No, you just haven't learned yet. It is possible to learn to rise above that. Paul says to the Thessalonians that you can learn to control your body in a way that is holy and honorable. You know, a lot of people find this hard to believe, but when I was a young man, when I was a kid, a boy in, in middle school and in, uh, in elementary school, I got kicked out of school several times. I got sent home. Why? Because I was always fighting. I was always getting in fights in classrooms, in recess, in the hallway. I was always picking fights. I was always not backing down from fights. And they started throwing me out of school. They started sending me home for days and weeks at a time. And I had to learn to overcome my temper. Guess what? I did. Now, God was the key part of that. I learned it from him. But I did. I learned. And most people go, I just can't imagine you getting in a fight, Pastor Greg. Well, that's pretty cool. That means I've learned something. Yeah. And the same thing can happen with our sexuality. God wants you to be sexually sanctified because it sets you free. One last word on this and we'll move on. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and he says this, Flee from sexual immorality because all other sins a man commits are outside his body. He who sins sexually sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Spirit who is in you, who you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And what, what is he saying? He's saying, hey, sexual sin affects you in a unique way. And I don't want you to be affected in that way. I want you to be free from that. Let me tell you a story. Kira Bell was 14 years old when she first began to identify as a boy. And everyone around her encouraged her, especially the doctors she visited. They encouraged her, prescribed puberty-blocking drugs, testosterone treatments, and eventually a radical double mastectomy. But none of it made her happy. Every time she tried another therapy to become more male, she got a short-lived thrill and a rush, and then in her own words, quickly sank back to depression and anxiety. At 23 years old, at the bottom of her depression cycle. She read an article about Rachel Dolezal, the white American woman who called herself black but wasn't. And she said, as I read that article, I suddenly realized I was doing the same thing. That all of my struggles were just the normal struggles of growing up, of being an adolescent, and there was nothing wrong with my body. She said, I began to wish that somebody would have had the courage to say something to me. In December of 2020, a British court ruled in her favor and said that teenagers can't give consent to such radical medical procedures. A moment of sanity and all the insanity. But, but that moment of sanity can't just happen in a court of law. It needs to happen in you and in me. When you say to yourself, you know what, what I feel sexually isn't who I am. It's just a temptation often. Now, there's, there's not time to get into the fact that, that God invented sexuality. He loves it. It's an awesome and a great thing. I'm resisting the temptation to have somebody say amen. I'm not saying that here. But it is a great gift inside of God's boundaries. And by the way, before we move on, if you're struggling in this area, you can talk to me. Been there, done that. You're not going to shock me. You're not going to blow me away. You're not going to change how I feel about you, how I see you, how I think about you. All I'm going to do is try to help you in the same way that God has helped me, to learn to control their own body. So that's an invitation. Paul finishes this section, verses 7 and 8, and he says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction doesn't reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. If you give yourself to sexual immorality, what you're doing is rejecting God's fatherhood. And he doesn't want you to do that any more than you want your kids to do that. He goes on. So he's talked about one way to please him. There's two others, and they're much briefer. He goes on in verses 9 and 10 and says this. Here's the second way to please God, more than obedience, to please God. Now, about brotherly love, he writes, we don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet I urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Real love is never done. 
it doesn't get to a point that says, okay, I've accomplished it, I've achieved it, I'm done loving. It, it just never gets there. Real love persists, it perseveres, it can't be satisfied. It must keep giving, serving, seeking. My, my wife has been gone for the last few days and I just sit around and think, how blessed I am. Wow, what can I do for her when she gets back? to make her know how much I appreciate her. Every time I do something for her, it feels to me like it's not enough. She deserves more. That's the nature of love. And God says, choose to feel that way about each other, about your fellow believer, about the people that you, you, you worship with, about the, the people that also confess the name of Christ. At what point are you done loving your kids? You never are. And in the same way, never be done loving your fellow believer. You know, Ellie, our dog, is almost eight years old. And every single time we come home, it doesn't matter if we went next door to the mini mart to get a soda. Every single time we come home and open the door, yay, greet, hey, we're together, everybody's here, this is awesome. You know, we love the dog. She greets us, her tail wags, she jumps, we're happy, we chase her around. Every single time, it never gets old. Why? Because that's the nature of love. That is what love does. That is how love feels. When Jesus talked about the greatest commandment, he said it has two parts, and the other part is to love one another. God's word makes it clear to us that anyone who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And he used that phrase, brother, sister, because he's talking about your fellow believer. He's talking about one another. Lots of people think that their personal moral obedience is a substitute for being in love with the family of God. It's not in God's eyes. It's not. He doesn't go, oh, that's okay. Greg gives me his moral obedience and Bill over there gives me his love for his fellow believer. No, God says, I'm much more pleased by Bill than I'm pleased by Greg. Everybody's wondering who Bill is. I just made that up, all right? And love for one another is despite differences. It's despite differences. It's despite the differences in our culture. It's despite the differences in our politics. It's despite the differences in our level of maturity. It's despite the differences in, in every other area. Love for one another is bigger than that. And that's what pleases God. You say, God, I'm just not going to smoke, drink, or chew or go with girls who do. He says, well, that's obedience, but it doesn't please me. Pleasing me has to do with loving for one another. And then he finishes in verses 11 and 12, and here's where we finish this morning. He says, finally, make it your ambition, catch this, to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you won't be dependent on anyone. You know, we are so soaked in social media that we think popularity and notoriety and reputation is the most important thing we can gain in this world, and it's a total lie. God says he's deeply pleased by a quiet life, one in which you mind your own business and work hard, because when you live like that, your daily life wins the respect of people who don't know Jesus yet as their Savior. Let me ask you, is it your ambition to be noticed? Stop it. That's not what pleases God. I've never had more people smiling at me than the morning I got up to preach with my zipper open. <laughs> but I wasn't winning. <laughs> I wasn't achieving anything in that moment. I was failing. And in the same way, we think if we got a big audience, if I'm an Instagram influencer, are you kidding? God, God says that stuff's not real. In this social media age, lots of us think getting noticed is what matters. God says to aim in the opposite direction. Don't aim to build an audience. Aim to make a difference. They aren't the same thing. Do stuff in secret because God sees it and rewards it. Jesus puts it this way. He says, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Why? Because through that, God speaks loudest. When you aim for this, you earn a kind of respect, Paul says, and that's really important. 
to God because you are his son and daughter. And whether you say anything or not, you're an advertisement. You're a reflection on him. I remember when our son was small, almost done. I remember when our son was small and sometimes, you know, he would go to spend the night with a friend, uh, another family in the church. And, and um, sometimes he, that family would come up to us and the next Sunday say, hey, Pastor Greg, Rhonda, we just got to tell you about what a great kid your son is. And after recovering from the shock of hearing those words, right, <laughs> we're like, and they would tell us that he had done this or that or the other thing. And in that moment, we knew why he had done that. He had done it specifically because he wanted to be a good representative of us and our family. Not always. But the times that he did, we were so deeply pleased. I remember one time a family came and said, your son, he was a teenager then, they said, your son is, is so good with the little kids. He spent most of the evening paying attention to the little kids. My heart wanted to bust out of my chest. In the same way, God says, I'm deeply pleased by you when your quiet, respectful, steady, consistent life advertises who your father is, who you belong to. We live in a time when many believers give God a bad reputation because they're always mad, they're always criticizing, they're always upset. It doesn't glorify God. There's a huge difference between being right and being good. God calls us to be good because it speaks louder. And, and, and this is exactly, friends, the mistake, the error, the sin of the Pharisees. Jesus called them sons of hell, even though they were the most churched people in their culture. Why? Because they were missing the point. Because they were aiming for something other than this kind of obedience, than to please God in this way. When we aim for a steady, quiet life of responsibility and love for one another, we send a message that is always heard loud and clear, whether we know it or not. Let me finish with a story. You know, growing up, um, our family wasn't churched. Our, our family wasn't a Christian Christ-following family. And, um, and, and so we just didn't think twice about those kinds of things. And uh, I remember, though, that sometimes we would gather with our extended family, and my uncle in particular. My, my uncle uh, played basketball at the University of Oregon, so he was kind of a star in my eyes But as a boy. But sometimes he, he would invite me along with him to a, a team lunch or a, uh, you know, a picnic or something like this. And, and I remember that when I would go to those, there was a little group of three players on that team that was completely different than the rest of the team. The rest of the team was loud and, and uh, you know, drinking and carrying on. These three tended to sit together a lot. They tended to laugh. They tended to talk about serious things. They always seemed interested in an eight, nine, ten-year-old me. And I remember, even at that age, sitting there and thinking, there's something different about these guys. These three guys are different. They're not like the rest. And that's all I really understood at that moment. But years later, as a young man, when that same uncle sent to me a little book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and when he wrote it and he said, Greg, while you're doing this searching and seeking in your life, be sure that you listen to Jesus. When I got that book and read that note, I remembered what I felt as a boy. And that's the only reason I read that book. And that's the book that led me to Christ. You know, it, it seems like what my uncle was doing in those moments didn't matter. It got no headlines. But it was the most important thing in the world. And in the same way, God says he's pleased when we're like that. When we have that kind of effect on the people around us. So, I finish where we started. Are you seeking to obey God or to please him? There's a difference between the two. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. And as we go back out into this troubled world, Lord, send us out as a people seeking to please you because we know that you are most pleased by blessing us. God, those of us that struggle with sexual immorality, God, teach us to humble ourselves before you that we might learn to control our bodies. God, for those of us who have become indifferent to our fellow believers who just kind of, you know, attend a, 
a franchise event every week. God, teach us to open our lives to one another, to love one another like you call us to. God, for those of us who have aimed for something other than a quiet life, who have aimed for something other than a life that wins respect, God, teach us that that is what pleases you and that is what is most useful in your hands. We pray for that. We thank you for your word this morning, God. We thank you for your love. Send us from here knowing that we please you when we do more than obey you. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, church? I always think at the end, how did they stay awake all that time? But uh, thank you for that. This is our Father speaking to us. This is how we please Him. Now may the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit go with you throughout this week. Go with God. Tell someone you love Him. Have a great afternoon.